0: Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw and on this podcast we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, the crisis podcast, we're going to be joined by Ian Walker, the executive editor of Mail Online. Ian and I had a fascinating conversation about the 24-7 nature of today's media and the impact that it has in crises. Before we listen to that conversation, though, I'm again joined by Karen White of National and Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Hi, Gav.
1: Thanks for having us. Hi, Gav.
0: Now, in Ian's interview, he spoke about the fast-moving nature of the news now and how the audience is always hungry for updates and want to see how a story moves on as quickly as possible. Is that a good thing or a bad thing in a crisis? Karen?
1: So I think in addition to the 24-hour news cycle that we're seeing here in Canada, there's a lot of consolidation in media and shrinking newsrooms, which is putting even more pressure Um, on our reporters. And a lot of consolidation is happening. And so one of the things that we try to speak with our clients about is helping them understand that intense pressures that reporters are under, that they need to get timely stories out there. Sometimes the more factual, the more timely information that we can provide, the better the stories are going to actually be. And so reporters, you know, nurturing that relationship, making them a part of your crisis response and and leveraging their channels in order to communicate with their stakeholders are really important. So I think, you know, in some ways that can actually work for us because, you know, because of that pressure that they're under, if we have those relationships in place and we can get information to them, we're kind of influencing or feeding that story in a way that, You know it will work favorable for a company in some cases so you know while it's challenging and reporters are under a lot of pressure in some cases it can be your best opportunity to get your message out in a timely way
0: yeah that's really interesting karen and gary what about you
2: there are two things uh, it's worth considering the first is how the extent to which those fast-moving news stories actually like the touch paper of social media And I think it's very important for our clients not to get distracted by social media and to understand the role of social media in dealing with this sort of response. Social media is a tool to be used. It's a means of getting information in. It's a means of communicating outwards. It's not the North Star in your response. The second thing to consider is that because things are fast moving, you need to have the process and the protocol in place to be able to be fast moving yourself. That doesn't necessarily mean making all the decisions very quickly, but it means that, for example, once you have something you want to communicate, you're able to get that from sign off to media very quickly. We've all been in the situation where we have seen a response drafted and go around the houses for enough time that it's actually coming back approved two days after the story has been written. And that's just <laughs> not feasible uh, in today's world. So again, and I appreciate I'm the person who bangs on about process, there's a piece of work to be done before a crisis hits to make sure that you have that protocol and process in place so that whenever you need to move quickly, you're able to do it.
0: Another good point, Gary. Thank you. Thanks both. Uh, We'll speak more to you guys after we've listened to Ian himself. So without further ado, here's the lovely Mr. Ian Walker. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with a senior figure from the world of business. So we get to learn about the crisis experiences they've experienced and the lessons you need to hear. Our guest on this show is Mr. Ian Walker, Ian is the executive editor at The Mail Online, the biggest online news outlet on the planet. He joined The Mail Online in 2017 after 17 years with Evening Standard, the last five of which he'd been deputy editor. Ian is an absolute legend of Fleet Street and has been there and broken some of the biggest news stories around. Today, we'll be picking his brain on what it's like to be on the other side of the crisis when he's most likely to be asking the tough questions that you might not want to hear. And trust me, he's very good at doing that. Ian, thank you for joining us on White Swan, the crisis podcast.
3: No, it's a pleasure and uh, good to talk to you, Gav.
0: Thanks, Ian. Well, look, how did you get to where you are today, which is a really big role in a fantastically big organisation?
3: Well, Gavin, I I guess I'm... A slight difference to a lot of the people who work in the media now, because I started on a a weekly newspaper when I was 17. I left uh, school in a place called Ellesmere Port, which is up on the Wirral, on Merseyside now. was in Cheshire in those days, and my local paper was the Ellesmere Port News, which had a circulation of 4,000, and was quite unusual and unique now in that uh, there were actually two local papers, and the rival was the Ellesmere Port Pioneer, which uh, sold 17,000, and so we were involved in a massive uh, circulation battle to try and win readers over, which involved uh, things like on a Monday night, um, because our publication day was Wednesday, our press day was Tuesday which meant it was very difficult to get the darts results in, uh, whereas the Pioneer, who uh, published on a Thursday, actually had the advantage of that extra day. So I was uh, given the job of ringing up local pubs to get their darts results at uh, 10 o'clock on a Monday night, which, as you can imagine, after a few beers and a a celebration of either winning or losing in the darts league, just getting that actual result out of of the punters at the other end of the phone could prove to be a bit of a challenge. But uh, you learned then, I think, the advantage of speaking to people and talking to them, and although it meant that uh, Monday nights were a long night you you did tend to to get the advantage of the fact they would pick your paper up because they would see their results in there from there. I spent four years on on the local paper group in as I say, up in the world, before moving on to the uh, Express and Star in Wolverhampton, which was an evening newspaper, had a much bigger circulation, and was covered pretty much uh, most of uh, the black country into Birmingham. So I was there for two years uh, before joining the Birmingham Post, which is a a daily regional paper which comes out in the mornings uh, where I became medical reporter Reasons which I've never really quite worked out, <laughs> but um, but it was uh, an interesting challenge talking to doctors, and from there in uh, 1980 I did some shifts on I think the Sunday Mirror, and uh, then uh, got a six month contract on the Daily Mail, and uh, joined there in 1981, and I was at the Mail for just uh, just under ten years. Uh, I became night news editor after uh, doing a reporting job for five years. Uh, I was then uh, made deputy news editor of the Daily Express, where I stayed until 1999 before I went on to work at the Sunday Mirror and the Daily Telegraph for uh, brief periods before joining the Standard in 2000. So I have to say I've seen pretty much most of the different ways in which newspapers are put together and uh, after uh, after seventeen years at the standard the uh, mail online came and offered me the job here and I think as, as journalists, we all have to appreciate that the world kind of changes. Uh, Back in the old days when I was on the road, you had to find a phone box to file your copy. Uh, It often meant, strangely, going into a pub as being the best place to find those phones, which was always an advantage. Then suddenly you had those, I don't know, you probably don't remember them, but the original mobile phones were like house bricks, uh, nothing like the models which we have now, which we used to carry around with us. And then we got onto the rather uh, easy to carry mobile phone. We went from typewriters to computers for violin copy and I think, as journalists, we all have to appreciate that you know times move on and technology moves on and the way in which information is passed on to readers, customers, online users changes and uh, because of that I, I feel it's important that, that journalists embrace the new media and the key for us is to make sure that uh, the journalism which people see whether it's on a tablet or a laptop or a phone is accurate and fair and, and well balanced and I think that's that's the big challenge for every journalist actually.
0: So Ian you've been there and you've done it across traditional print and now into as you term it the new media. Um, how do crises differentiate themselves between both elements there? Because I'm guessing that in the past, when there was traditional news cycles of 24 hours, a crisis would be much easier to write about because you'd have a lot of news to pick up on the next day. Uh, but in this 24-7 news era, a crisis can be in and out within 24 hours and complete and finished. Is that a problem for the media as much as an advantage?
3: No, I agree. I think I think if you, if you look at a story which developed 10, 15 years ago, as a journalist, you have much more time to be able to, uh, to research it, to look at what the causes of that crisis are, to talk to the people who are involved and get a balanced view of it. Uh, now, uh, when a story breaks, there's a demand for almost instantaneous coverage, which means you have much less time to be able to talk to people. Uh, judgments have to be made probably much quicker. And uh, clearly our rivals are also facing those challenges. So there is still that demand, which goes back to why I was making those calls to the darts teams on a Monday night. It was to get the story and th- those results in first. And those demands are still there as journalists. You want to be first with the story. But you also have to try and make it uh, it's accurate and fair. That is the big challenge now because you need to try and get those responses much quicker than waiting for someone to to actually try and talk to a boss to try and say they need time to prepare a statement because we are looking for a much quicker response than we were when we were working purely in the print media. So when a crisis happens
0: or news of something comes in how do you approach it within the newsroom? Do you Do you all get together and say, this is going to be big? These are the angles we need to get on here to try and beat the competitors? Or what's the approach you take?
3: I mean, we still hold conferences online. Um, It's not really as structured a day as it would be uh, working on a daily newspaper or indeed an evening newspaper. I think the, the meetings would be much more informal in that if a story is breaking, you need to talk to a colleague. I mean, the way we're structured, I run a team of proactive reporters who go out and talk to stories. There's also a news desk, which in actual fact are dealing with the stories which are being sent in, whether it's from agencies or from freelancers. So we have to talk between ourselves to make sure that we're covering the story in an accurate way. I mean, today is a good example where uh, it's the first day out of lockdown and various parts of the country are in different tiers. So we've set up uh, staff to go and look at the Differences and comparisons between tiers one, two and three and how the people are dealing with that, whether they're able to go and shop, whether they can go and get a haircut, whether they can go to Weatherspoons for a breakfast. Um, but also there are agencies who are doing the same thing. So I have to liaise with the uh, head of news about making sure that uh, that we're actually giving as wide a possible coverage of the country as we can. Uh, we have a editor of the website who deals with the main page which is which is how you see uh, which you go to first when you log on to mail online and we have to keep him abreast of of what's happening whether there's a story breaking how we're covering it what the best line is and again you're always looking for a new line I would say probably a story uh, we have a banner which is the main story at the top of the page and the splash which is the second main story which usually comes under it the chances of those stories remaining the same i would reckon it's it's you're doing well if you get two hours because you can see from the data which is provided how much interest there is from uh, the people who are who are on the website and you can see that spike and then slowly it goes into decline that's when you have to refresh it so there is always a demand for finding a new angle and finding a new way of of selling that story which is a challenge you don't have the opportunity of having that newspaper in front of you at uh, 10 o'clock when it's uh, put to bed and uh, thinking, oh great, well there we are, that's finished, because in two hours time you're going to have to think of a way of actually uh, re-energising both that headline and and the way in which the story is, is sold.
0: So you're looking at the data continuously to see the stories and the angles, which are not maybe getting the hits and you're yeah. looking to refresh those. That must've been really interesting coming in. I guess even at Standard, they were doing that to a certain extent because of the website. But how have you find your instinct matches what people want? Because I guess in the past, journalistic instinct was everything this is a story this is going to run the editorial instinct was this is important but i guess now the data is driving an end of that has your instinct matched the data
3: yeah it's an interesting an interesting point um i mean when i when i joined mail online uh, i think i had a slight uh conception of it that it was very much showbiz generated and uh, there was a, a, a very light touch on stories. Uh, having arrived here, and you know, I felt that that was probably being generated by the data which showed what the readership wanted. Having arrived here, it's, uh, it's interesting that as a journalist, I think we stand sometimes underestimate the intelligence of the people we're writing for Uh, and strangely the data shows that there is a real interest from uh, readers as we could call them in the same subjects that you would expect people to look at in a newspaper and serious subjects whether it's to do with government policy whether it's to do with Covid whether it's to do with Brexit whether it is to do with crime those do well people like to read it the key is if it's a good story uh the point is you can't really just just put things in pigeonholes and say well because it's about um crime that's definitely going to be read i mean rather like a newspaper if it's a good story then people will actually read it and i think it's quite refreshing and um helps your view of, of uh and takes away some of the cynicism of your view of people that they actually do read and and enjoy reading a kind of vast sort of array of stories and it's not just show business. I mean, again, I think going back to to Daily Mail days where you always used to have a uh, a splash which may well be political or it could be a crime story if it was a big story. But you always tried also to have a a show busy picture on the front because uh, someone I can remember said to me, uh, a reader who's had a, a hard day on Traveling on a, a bus, in walking home in the rain, or is getting up looking forward to another day in the office. They do want some brightness as well as seriousness. So I think we have to entertain as well as educate people, and I think that's reflected in in what people look to uh, for the website as much as it is in the newspaper.
0: It's a really interesting uh, situation at present, now because when I first started out in my career in politics, um, we used to use the wires to change stories or to break stories, etc. And nowadays the wires which were then sort of B2B, the wires were, for anyone who doesn't understand, the wires are what the newspapers use to get new angles and new quotes, et cetera, for pieces. But these days, titles like the Mail Online are in effect your wires and your public-facing stories together, and you have to continuously update them. Do you think our world the business world has stayed up to date with the need to speak to you guys in a crisis to communicate with you to use you like our wire service or do you think they're still behind the uh
3: behind the, the times with that i genuinely think have, that i think rather like the business that i'm in myself on this side of the fence we are also having to reassess the way in which we do our jobs because The technology has changed, the demands are different, and we have to to move with the times. And I think probably from a PR's point of view, it is quite difficult. I mean, Mellon Line is in many ways a unique organisation because we have a newspaper which is incredibly successful and is is full of brilliant journalists. And we kind of run along slightly parallel tracks. So although there is interplay between the two, we're not the same. And so I can understand that a PR may think that they've spoken to someone on the newspaper and that covers the the story. However, for, for a newspaper reporter, they're looking still at producing the best possible journalism for the Daily Mail as a paper, uh, whereas we want it quicker and probably slightly different. So I think sometimes... People, I suspect, will get a call from Mail Online and the Daily Mail and wonder why uh, two people from the same organisation are talking to them. And although the story is the same, it's slightly different the way in which it's going to be uh, it's going to be put out uh, on our on our website. And I think you know the same is happening. I think if you look at the Sun, they are very much I think encouraging now a a drive towards the online operation. I think there is a feeling that readers are getting older of newspapers and the younger generation are much more interested in getting their information digitally. Um, I think it's important that we try to discourage a total reliance on social media. I think part of the whole issue of fake news, which has has been one of the challenges for digital journalism, is slowly changing because I think, as I said earlier, the public are not Stupid. They do tend to realise that, you know, what is a balanced and fair story, and what is just feeding their particular uh, prejudices. And we have to con continue to do that. And I think, you know, that's where, from the PR side of the uh, of, of the fence, it's about understanding that when we ring people up, or or email them, or talk to them, we do need a, a swift response rather than uh, a feeling that you can you can just delay that. A swift
0: response is one thing, but would you even prefer proactivity coming from the PRs to reach out to you to try and give their angle first? I mean, is there a, is there a natural inclination to work with them if they have reached out to you first?
3: Absolutely. I think, obviously, a lot of people have dealings with the, uh, the media where they feel bruised after after that contact, but... I think if people are fair and honest and productivity should never be frowned upon, I think we welcome that. I think we welcome talking to people first. I think the slight issue you have, whether you're a print journalist or a digital journalist, is when your inbox is full of with the greatest respect, guff, which is yeah. flogging a product, uh, you're still going to get a response where people are not going to necessarily come back to you on that. But when there is a a crisis, I think proactivity would be would be fantastic rather than us having to chase people around. If they came to us, then I think that would be you know going on the front foot. That's never a bad thing, I don't think, and particularly when you're dealing with a crisis.
0: Yeah, you and I have worked on a few together where we have been proactive and come to you because of trusted relationship that you and I have as friends but it's led to very good results I mean you are taking a risk by trusting me I guess and I'm taking a risk by trusting you but the results are always better for the people we're working with
3: no absolutely and I think uh, that is that is very true I think on both sides it's obviously it's a difficult thing to build because trust doesn't come easily anywhere in life, does it? And particularly, I think, in terms of dealing in media relations between whether it's PRs, business leaders, the public, the police, and the press. And I I feel that probably that relationship has been severely damaged uh, in the last decade or so. And it's still key, I think. Obviously, personal relationship is important, but I feel that personal relationship, which may not be built in the same way as it used to be over the uh, the old-fashioned long lunch, now I think that the, the pressures of time and, and the way in which the world has changed, it's much more about uh, that relationship depending on how a story is, is is sold to the journalist and how that journalist Sells that story, and once once you you build trust in the terms of the fact that the PR is being honest with the journalist, and the journalist then doesn't twist the words of the PR, then that has to be a good way of moving forward. I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, Ian, over the years that you've been doing this job, what are the stories, the crises that you look back on and have a bit of a laugh about uh, at how badly they've been handled? By uh, the businesses or the PRs uh, who are meant to be looking after their organisations.
3: To be honest with you, the, the worst occasions actually are when there's a crisis and you uh, you speak to a PR and the policy is just don't reply and you phone and you email and then nothing happens and you're kind of left sort of being in a position of saying, well, we're going to print this story or we're going to publish this story, you know, whether you reply or whether you don't. And then when it appears, the PR is on instantly to say, well, that's wrong, that didn't work, you know. And you say, well, you know, why didn't you say that at the time? And I think it's so much better to have uh, an interaction between the two sides rather than in actual fact just thinking the problem will go away.
0: I guess in that situation, Ian, where someone has left a vacuum for someone else to fill, it's incredibly dangerous. And you're right. If the mistake has been made, it's much harder to ring up and ask for a correction of the copy online than it would be. Because I guess, as you said, you guys are rushing as well. So if mistakes have been made, they're honest mistakes, and you are willing to adapt online copy if it's incorrect. Is that fair? Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And also, I'm sure, as everybody would agree, I mean, whether you go into your bank or whether you're booking a flight and then you have an issue and no one responds, your immediate natural reaction is negativity towards the people you're trying to deal with because they haven't responded to your inquiry. And that's exactly the same, I think, in terms of a journalist approaching someone for a comment or to get some guidance on how a story actually what the truth is and I think guidance is probably an important word here it's not just about what you actually publish it's also about understanding what is driving the story and although people may not believe it in a lot of cases uh, stories which we are given we talk to somebody whether it's you know the person we're writing about or their their representative and if they explain why the situation has developed in a way in which it's potentially difficult and negative if it's written then we're tend to not do that because, you know, we're not really in the market of of hanging people out to dry or to make life worse. What we're trying to do is actually get to the truth. And that's why a a non-answer is is probably the worst way of dealing with it.
0: Yeah, you used the word fairness earlier. You said it had to be fair. And I think that We'll surprise some people in with their perception but it's absolutely what i've experienced with you and your team and tell me with with your team i mean you're at the top there you're when something comes in do you genuinely get excited about it from a news breaking perspective still is that something you you can
3: absolutely i think it's still the case when you uh when you pursue a story and uh and the plan all comes together. It's uh, it's very gratifying. I suppose there's two two things you would say. There's an adrenaline rush when a story breaks and uh, you're involved in it. There's a great deal of satisfaction when you're involved in planning, covering a story in a way in which you get people out and they go to the right people and the right people talk to them and they. Do a very good job, and you feel you've actually made a contribution in in directing people in the right way. And then there is genuine pleasure when it's when it's well written and and everybody's happy with it. Is the point It doesn't happen all that often, but you know the person you're writing about is happy, the person who's reading it's happy, and the person who's written it's happy. So I think that's that's the the dream scenario really. And that, do do you
0: have any sort of front pages that you've uh, been responsible for and. In- Back at home on the wall, anyone's you're particularly proud of? It?
3: Well, sadly, yeah. I mean, I I was covered uh, the Heisel football riot back in uh, 1985, and I suppose whether you would describe that as being being proud of it, it was a um, clearly as a Liverpool football fan um, it, to be involved in in something like that. Uh, it's a I don't think probably proud of it is the right way of describing it, but it was a, a challenging situation and to suddenly be thrust into something which you are not really uh, used to and to cover it in the way in which you, know, you do as a journalist. I mean, what I found interesting is thinking back. I mean, you know, you were there and then suddenly the whole thing Kicked off and and the wall collapsed and suddenly there were there were bodies lying everywhere, and I was outside the stadium because we were covering as a as a news journalist there rather than doing the sports reporting on it. And you walk into that and you find people there who are who are clearly losing their lives. And what I found interesting as a journalist was you see it as a journalist perhaps as much as as a human being that you are thinking how you can describe that in words which explain and and generate to the person who is not there what's actually happening. But at the same time, you have to, there is a human side to the fact you're dealing with human beings. And I can remember it was, uh, I couldn't sleep for about, you know, a day afterwards, two days afterwards, because while you were involved in doing it and reporting on it, you have to see it as a reporter, but at the same time part of you is a person is a is a football supporter and, and the horror of it is still there and I, I- guess for anyone who's in those circumstances you have to you have to become professional in the way in which you cover you cover it and i I think it it also encourages in me an amazing appreciation of the work which is done by emergency services, which sometimes we tend to forget about because you know, they have to go in and try and save lives, whereas we're trying to, to report on it. Um, so that was up there, I think. Um, I mean, I seem to spend most of my reporting life covering uh, uh, sort of disasters, really. I was at uh, the first Bricks and Riots. And again, I think it's it's as a reporter, it's a professional pride in doing a job whereby you feel you've you've reported what happened in a way in which it, uh, it tells people who weren't what actually happened.
0: Yeah, I know that particularly Heysel must have been extremely tough because I know what a massive Liverpool fan you are. And it's clearly had an impact on how you report going forward afterwards, which is seismic change for you, really.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think in many ways I can understand why a lot of of people uh, perceive, uh, perceive the journalistic profession as being vultures in these circumstances. But I think if you stop reporting on events... Then I mean the changes which were made in terms of stadium safety, and although clearly yeah, soccer hooliganism was was part of the uh, part of the reason for it, and and people who would taken drink and and were out of hand, there's no defending that. But the stadium itself wasn't fit for purpose, and I think it uh, it again changed the way in which the authorities looked at, uh, at treating supporters. Again, I went up and covered the Bradford fire, which again was a case whereby football supporters were not treated in a way in which they should have been. The safety procedures weren't followed people were getting away with, uh, with perhaps not being as, as robust in, in checking as they should have been. And, and those things actually change the protection and the, and the way in which uh, people's safety is looked after. And I think, you know, without uh, a free press, without um, that being reportable, I think those chances of, of making those changes can, uh, can be much more difficult.
0: When you see a crisis coming in, that sort of duty to hold the establishment to account, really, to do what's right for the people of this nation and others out there, is that something you still get excited about, sort of biting back or fighting back at the establishment and, and, and putting them in their place to a certain extent? Is that very much at the heart of your approach?
3: Absolutely. I think, I think anyone who goes into journalism, I mean, I think we all have our... Principles when we start in in any job, and you hope to achieve the best you can at what you're doing. And I think, uh, in terms of journalism, I think if you look at the history of uh, of the press, in many ways they are the uh, first. Um, Uh, people who go into battle on behalf of uh, the public in terms of trying to uh, protect them against um, an establishment which might have closed its door on them. And I think that is very important. I think inevitably there are times when it's not fair, it's times when mistakes are made, it's times when people perhaps go too far, but you still have to have that first... um, barrier to extremism, barrier to people being allowed to do things which they should be held accountable for, but they can do behind closed doors because no one knows about it. And that's what we have to keep on fighting for. I think at the end of the day, it is, it is a prime objective of journalism is to keep fighting for those freedoms to keep people in order to make them accountable
0: that 's a fine note uh, Ian to uh, as we come to the conclusion here, a couple of last questions though what 's your advice to p r s or business leaders who are listening to this today? If the crisis happens what 's your sort of top two or three pieces
3: of advice for how they can work with you guys I think always take the call would be the first one. I think um, I think work out what your strategy is. I think be honest with the journalist who you 're talking to. I think, don't just think the problem will go away. I think, try and find out what the truth is from your side. And as I say, I think sometimes it's it's briefing the journalists you're talking to about what it's all about so that they know is, is, is very important, actually. Fantastic. And when the crisis is uh, happening and...
0: You're you're all at it all day long, and often into the evening, into the early hours of the morning. How do you get a moment to 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 get some sense? How do you get away from it all? What do you do? And is there a sort of drink of choice or a food of choice which helps you get through a
3: crisis? Um, Well, I'm uh, I begin the day very healthily. with uh, probably an apple, two oranges, and uh, some hazelnuts, I usually have a, a sandwich and a uh, and some fruit at lunch times, and then usually in the evenings I would suggest a bucket of white wine is the best way <laughs> of coping in terms of having had a crisis to deal with. But these days, unfortunately, um, because it's quite likely the phone will ring because we're trying to move that story on, it usually has to be a glass rather than the bucket these days. But um, yes, I, I I have the odd coffee now and again but um i always find at the end of the day a glass of a sauvignon blanc is uh, is a civilized way of, of getting your thoughts back together again
0: well that's that's a fine point to finish with ian i hopefully will enjoy one of those glasses together very soon thank you for your time ian brilliant stuff it was great to hear from the other side of the fence so to speak when a crisis hits some great advice there particularly filling the vacuum being honest and responding to the calls that come from uh, news outlets when they reach out. Uh, Thanks, Mr. Ian Walker. Thank you, Gav. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ian Walker. Some really interesting and unique thoughts there. I'm sure you'll agree. I'm again joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK to talk about what we just heard. Welcome back both.
1: Hey, Gav. Hello.
0: So Ian spoke about the importance of the relationship between communications professionals and the media in helping to frame the story in a crisis. And he spoke about how journalists have less time these days to delve deeply into a story and have to cater for the instantaneous demand of news in the 24-7 world we live in. How do you both approach that when advising clients? Does trusting the media come easy to them? Gary, let's start with you this time, given you're a former journalist.
2: I am, and also a former journalist who came up uh, the old-fashioned way like Ian on on weekly newspapers uh, and then evenings. I think uh, clients are sceptical of media and they are nervous of trusting journalists, particularly in a moment when they are facing an issue or a crisis and the potential of, of negative headlines. There are two points, I think. Firstly, People are going to respond to an issue and they're going to respond to coverage about a particular business or organization very much in the context of how they view that organization already or how they view that individual or that business. And therefore, one of the things that we work with clients to think about is the moment of an issue or crisis is not the time to start trying to make friends in media and start trying to introduce your business or your organization. What you want to be doing is ensuring that you are telling the story of your business ongoing so that as and when an issue does break, A, you have relationship with the journalists, B, the leadership of your company are used to dealing with media and so aren't scared about having a conversation with the journalist. And C, the end audience also has an opinion already about the business through which it's able to view the context of the particular issue that we're talking about. The second point is what we can do on terms of response to that particular issue, um, as and when it breaks. And I think this is one where you The rule is to push the clients to engage with media when it is in their interests. And when it's in their interests is whenever, despite what they might or might not want, the story is going to break. And what you will find is, yes, as Ian said, stories are updated regularly, but often that first hit of the story and the first iteration of the story in that first R is how the narrative plays out over the next couple of days. And helping to shape that by speaking to media that you know, sometimes by bringing the story to the media's attention yourself, actually helps to define how people view that issue over the days and weeks ahead what about you karen
1: yeah i think exactly now I, I might make myself sound like i'm about 100 years old but i remember a time when you know we actually had beat reporters and reporters that would dig into a sector and had some depth of knowledge and so that investment and in relationship may have not been as critical but you know, one of the things that we do try to impart in our clients is like that education and opportunity to help journalists understand their business, not in times of crisis, particularly in sectors that are very complex and have a lot of moving parts. So whether it's editorial boards or having that conversation, having that coffee or virtual coffee these days in terms of having that connect and i i agree with gary like connecting with media in the time of a crisis is not the best time to be trying to build a relationship and i think we're seeing a lot of other challenges in here the rise of citizen journalism and people everyone is going to be a reporter and sharing a perspective which is very biased and so if you have that relationship with media if they're getting news from social media If you have that trusted relationship, you know, you can have the advantage of being the first mover and helping to shape the narrative of a story and sharing information and ensuring that there's balance in the story, which I think most good journalists are actually trying to achieve through their stories. And we tell clients, if you don't tell your story, somebody else is going to tell it for you. And so engaging with that reporter is so important in a crisis.
0: Yes, never allow a vacuum to occur. It's really important. Now, let's show a bit of cloth behind the story uh, that I mentioned uh, on that chat with Ian, this front page story I mentioned in regard to the sports world. Um, And that really could have come out in the wrong way if it hadn't been carefully handled. Uh, I really trust Ian and have a great relationship with him. So I knew I could take a risk after working all night because this issue was breaking overseas. Uh, so I could call him at 6 a.m. that morning and chat it through. I needed it to peer ASAP because it was about to come out in morning papers the next day on the other side of the world. And he was working as deputy editor at the London Evening Standard with an early print run in the UK. So I knew he wanted to break stories so the paper had fresh new content up front. So we both understood what we'd get from that story. He trusted me and he trusted what I would give him and I trusted him to do it in the right way. And the result was perfect and changed the global reporting of that story within minutes. Everyone followed the standard as it was a trusted title and had the inside story. It was a really great lesson for us and one that I've always used when chatting our team internally here uh, through what works in the business and what doesn't. The media are not our enemies. They have a job to do just like we do and in the vast Mm -hmm. majority of situations you can and should work with them rather than against them and i think ian has made that really really clear that's enough uh, from us today thanks very much for listening to karen gary and myself hopefully you've all enjoyed listening to this latest episode of white swan the crisis podcast if you enjoyed what you heard please like and subscribe for more at your usual podcast platform we'll be back soon with more chat from the world of crises Until then, please don't have nightmares because the proper preparation will ensure that whatever is thrown at you, you'll be fine.
1: White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com.